verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. You can be seated. And if you haven't noticed yet, and you're frantically looking for the big page of notes inside the booklet, if you flip right to the middle of it, right where the staples are, they have your sermon notes conveniently placed right there, right after the song lyrics. So fret not, you have your sermon notes full page in length. And just because it's smaller font doesn't mean that it takes less time to get through, sadly. So we'll see. Uh, some of you are probably familiar with this passage, um, but it may have sounded a little different to you because most people, when they think of the woman who anoints Jesus, they think of John's account because they think of this woman as being Mary, and they think of this woman as not only pouring the ointment on uh, Jesus' head, but also on his feet and then wiping his feet with her hair. We're probably more familiar with that. Actually, as I was looking up coloring sheets for the preschoolers this morning, because they always walk through the exact same passage that we do, I couldn't find anything from Mark. Like, it was just... It was all Mary, and there she is down on the ground with her really long flowing hair just wiping Jesus' feet, and I'm like, well, that's just going to have to do. And Pastor Kevin's over there, you know, he's, he'll handle that really well. I feel confident that he will. Um, you know, with this passage, it got me thinking, especially this week and uh, with college basketball, all of the scandal um, with players that, you know, it's, been, it's just an FBI investigation where players have, you know, um, it's come out that the players have uh, accepted loans and have been paid to go to different schools. And we all kind of assume this has probably been going on for a long time. And as a K- Kentucky fan, I was sweating like crazy, you know, waiting on some of those results to come out. And I was glad it was only a, a couple of our guys that were on it and it, it can be disputed and things like that. But it got me thinking, you know, when you think of a player like DeAndre Ayton, who's uh, probably going to be a top two draft pick in next year's draft. He plays at Arizona. Um, there, uh, there was a wiretap on his coach's phone, uh, and it was discovered that there was talk of a payment of about $100,000 to get Aiton to come to Arizona. And now there were other loans, like a couple players at Kentucky, their loans were one of them was around like $4,000, the other one was around like thirty. and then, you know, poor Kevin Knox, all that dude did was have a dinner with someone and they offered to pay for it, and that's, you know, against the rules. So uh, it got me thinking, though, what is the ability of a college basketball player worth? What's it worth? And then you start thinking about the NFL and all these uh, different contracts. It's like every single year when a new quarterback's up for a new contract, he becomes the highest paid player of all time. And you've got a guy like Jimmy Garoppolo. And if you're not a sports fan, you're probably like, I'm, first of all, I have no idea what you're saying. Second of all, I'm getting incredibly bored. But just bear with me. So Jimmy Garoppolo, if you've never heard of him, it's for good reason. He was uh, Tom Brady's backup in uh, New England. And he gets traded to San Francisco. He plays uh, about six games this year. Six games. Six games, he plays well, but then that bro signs one of the highest deals ever. Jimmy Garoppolo, not Tom Brady, not Peyton Manning, highest paid quarterback of all time, Jimmy Garoppolo. And so it it kind of forces you to ask the question, what is a really talented quarterback worth? Well, then it, then it causes me to think about just when you go to the store and you think about iPads and phones and all the things that you buy, even down to food. What's it all really worth? What's the inerrant worth of an orange? 
you know? And, and as you guys know, especially if you're in retail at all, things are worth what people are willing to pay. You know, finding the actual inerrant worth of something is really difficult. You know, uh, there, there was some talk with the WNBA. WNBA players, incredibly talented, incredibly talented. And they get paid like a fraction of what NBA players make. Why? Because it's a different product. More people watch the NBA. There's more money in it. So it's really difficult to get to the inerrant worth of anything. So I want to present you with a question at the beginning before we jump into this passage. And it's, what would you say Jesus is worth? Or maybe to put it another way, what is Jesus worth to you? And I can already hear some of you, and if, it, if we were in TC Kids, I would know exactly which kids would say this. He's worth everything. Everything. You know, and you're sitting there, yeah, that's the answer. Some of you may have written it down. Okay, sure. But I do want you to consider as we begin, what is Jesus's inerrant worth just period and then what is his worth to you and then maybe a more probing question how does your life the way you live communicate what Jesus is worth or what does your life the things that you do actually say about Jesus's worth some questions to consider at the beginning in Mark's account and again uh it, we're assuming that this is the same account. This, this woman who is unnamed by Mark would be Mary, but as I preach this, I'm not going to call her Mary because Mark doesn't call her Mary. We're going to do is, uh, I'm going to try my best to stay right with what Mark is saying because I think Mark leaves her unnamed for a reason. I think at the very end of this, we're going to see the importance of Mark not naming uh, this woman. So if you have John's account in your mind, let's try to wipe that out for a second and just hone in here on Mark 14. So Mark 14, what's happening? Mark 14, it opens with these two verses. You have the chief priests and the scribes, and they are finished with Jesus. They've been, it's, it's been a long time coming, all the way back to chapter two and chapter three, where they are really don't like Jesus, and they, they're threatened by his power, and they're, they don't want him around, but now they have finally resolved, we're gonna kill him. We're going to, like, it's going to happen. Now the question is, when? When is it going to happen? And these chief priests and the scribes, yeah, they're full of power, but they are just so cowardly. They're like, okay, it's Passover. Jerusalem is swelled. It's, you know, there are so many more people than normal. There are a lot of people here with a lot of messianic fervor, and they're excited, and we have tons of people who think Jesus is the Messiah. And if we just go up and arrest him, they might hurt us. So let's just wait. Let's wait until everybody's gone, and then we'll find a sneaky way to arrest Jesus, and then we'll kill him. So that's their plan. Well, then in verses 3 through 9, we have this beautifully intimate scene where Jesus is in the home of Simon the leper. And again, uh, this account in one way or another is told in all four Gospels. But when you look in all four Gospels, they, they look really different. Um, even the host of, of, the, of the dinner party. But Simon the leper here in Mark is having this dinner party. We don't know who he is. Uh, we assume at one point he was a leper and, you know, possibly Jesus had healed him and this was like a thank you dinner. You know, we, again, that's just speculation, but that's kind of what we have here. Jesus is here with his friends, with his disciples and with some other people. And we have this woman. It just says a woman. I kind of love the simplicity of that. A woman came and, you know, she takes this, a flask of pure nard, something that can only be found in India, and we'll kind of get to some of those details later, but something that's incredibly costly, and she doesn't just like pop it open, she breaks the neck so that it, the whole thing pours out, there's no saving it for later. And so she pours all of that on Jesus' head, and then the other people in the room, not, not just a few of them, the rest of them, the rest of the people in the room except for Jesus and this woman, they are just appalled by what she does. And they condemn her, and they're like, you could have given that money to the poor. You know, they let her have it. And then Jesus says an incredibly amazing statement in verse 6. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And then he goes on to talk about their motives and how actually what she has done, probably unwittingly, 
is prepare his body for burial. So that scene ends, and then it picks up the very next verse, this tragic, tragic verse that I want us to consider, and I pray it would, would convict our hearts. In verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. So we don't know. We, again, we can speculate all day long what caused Judas to do this. We know Satan was working in his heart, but why now? I, I, I don't know. But following this scene, Judas leaves, and he goes to the chief priests and the scribes, and then their timeline all of a sudden jumps up. It accelerates. Oh, if, if we have someone on the inside, we have an insider who can bring Jesus to us, we don't have to wait. Let's do it now. So something that we're seeing here, just, you know, we're walking through Mark. If you're new here, if you're just visiting the first time, our practice is to walk through Bible books. And so just to kind of orient us where we are in Mark's gospel, chapter 14, um, even though we've been in the Passion Week with Jesus' triumphal entry and he's had some last-minute teachings here, now in chapter 14, just before they're going to, you know, have the Lord's Supper later in chapter 14, this really is the final swoop of Jesus' life. And actually, in chapter 14, it begins in verse 3 with Jesus at a table with all of his friends, even though it begins in verse 1 with a plan to abandon him. And then in verses 10 through 12, or 10 and 11, uh, further plans to abandon Jesus. And 3 through 9, this is really the last time where Jesus will be with his friends where they're not abandoning him. He'll be with them again at the Lord's Supper, but he tells Judas to go and do what he must to abandon Jesus. They're going to be together again in Gethsemane, but they can't even stay awake with Jesus. And then as things start to spiral down at the beginning of chapter 15, Jesus is all alone. So let's look. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. But let's look. We're going to look at four different characters in this passage. As Jesus is with his friends for the last time, we're going to look at the characters of the chief priests and the scribes and how they absolutely defied Jesus. We're going to then jump all the way down to verses 10 and 11 and consider how Judas betrayed Jesus. We're going to look then in the middle of that scene, and we're going to see how the disciples and other people in the room were following Jesus, but they were so uncomfortable with what this woman was doing. And then finally, we're going to look at the extravagant love and devotion of this woman who Jesus holds up as a beautiful example. And here's what I want, if you don't get anything else, I want you to see this. Jesus, this story is here because Jesus looks at this woman and he says, that, that's it. That's what following me looks like. He has these disciples who've been with him this whole time and this woman in this home who does this simple, spontaneous act of love and devotion for Jesus. He holds it up and says, you see that? That's beautiful. You see that? I'm not, Mark doesn't even give her name, but her action, it'll never be forgotten. You want to know how to follow me? Right there. That's it. So, and we're, at the end, we're just going to ask the Lord to cause us to be like this. So let's pray really quickly. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reading of your word. And now I pray you would empower the preaching of your word. I pray that the gospel would be clear. I pray that the worth and the beauty and the glory of Jesus would captivate our hearts. That we would never casually follow Jesus. That we would guard our hearts from betraying Jesus. That we would examine our hearts to see if we're actually defying Jesus. Father, I pray your spirit would do a work in us we could never do for ourselves, and that is to open our eyes to see Jesus' beauty and then live lives that he calls beautiful. Father, help us this morning. Help me to preach. Help us to hear. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so four different points we're making here. In your sermon notes, we have summarized this uh, passage in one sentence, and it is extravagant devotion to Jesus is the only proper response to his exceeding worth. Extravagant devotion to Jesus is the only proper response to his exceeding worth. And so we're going to break it down. Four different groups. Let's start with the first one. So we have the chief priests and the scribes. They respond to Jesus in the category that I call absolute defiance. And again, as we start walking through these things, I do want to challenge you, especially if you have something to write with. 
If you have anything to write on, I want to encourage you, where do you think you fall? Where do you think you fall? There are four categories there of responses to Jesus. Where do you think you fall? Or maybe where are you today? Let's maybe not characterize your whole life, but where are you today? Um, So let's just so you have that in mind. But absolute defiance, absolute defiance. The chief priests and the scribes defied Jesus because they valued power more than Jesus. And this is kind of a pattern you're going to see here. Everyone except the woman values something more than Jesus. And you and I will be unable to truly and deeply follow Jesus in the way that he calls us to if we value anything more than him. Whatever you value most is the thing that you worship, it's the thing that you follow. And so the chief priests and the scribes, they defy Jesus because they value power more than Jesus. And we can look at the passage in verses one and two. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. You see, Jesus was a threat He was a threat to their self-made kingdoms. The chief priests and the scribes had a pretty good gig going before Jesus arrived. They were responsible for leading the people in religious worship, and they were also responsible for helping interpret the scriptures. But they could interpret the scriptures however they wanted to to fit their own traditions and their own agendas. And the people would listen to them and follow them. They had a great deal of power. It's not so different than, sadly, I hate to even admit it, some churches where you have pastors that will that will interpret passages in ways that are not faithful to the text and then proclaim it to the people in a way and they just believe them without actually studying themselves. It's a dangerous kind of power. But it's a power they had. It's a power they enjoyed. When Jesus comes on the scene, he just throws all of that into whack. Jesus turns their entire world upside down and they want none of it. Jesus comes in and he says, I know you've kind of built your own little cute kingdom here with all these little traditions that you have, but the king is here now. The king is here, and I've come to take my throne. And the chief priests and the scribes are not okay with this. So they defy him. They seek a way to put him to death. And so I I know some of you are probably thinking, it's like, well, yeah, but that's a little extreme. I've never once in my life wanted to kill Jesus. I've, I've, never, I've never read something in the Bible, not liked it, and been like, I wish I could kill him. You know, I mean, I mean, we don't do that. But what does it look like? What does it look like for you and I to defy Jesus in a way that's similar to the chief priests and the scribes? And I believe we do it in one particular way, and it's opposing Jesus' authoritative claims or opposing Jesus' authority. Because Jesus calls people into a kingdom where he is the only king. And and maybe you've never really understood what it means to be a Christian. Christians renounce themselves and submit to Jesus. Followers of Christ say, my way is garbage. And even if it brings me some measure of of joy, I'm trusting that your way is better and I'm going to do it. And so if you're in this room this morning and you're trying to follow Jesus without actually obeying him and you're trying to live your own life according to your own wisdom and your own power, you are defying Jesus. You can't be a disciple apart from obedience. It doesn't work that way. You don't get to pray a prayer so that Jesus saves you from hell and then live your life however you want. It doesn't work that way. That's called defiance, no matter how pretty it looks in your life. And we need to recognize something. There can be only one king, not just of the world, not just of uh, the universe or the church or heaven. There can be only one king of your life. Now, the question you need to ask yourself and examine your heart to see Is that King Jesus? Or have I put myself on the throne? Are you depending on your own resources and abilities to find meaning and satisfaction and joy and purpose? Are you making decisions 
and doing things based on what you think is best, not considering what Jesus himself would have to say. It means that you think you're the king. And when you think you're the king, you'll be just like the chief priests and the scribes. There can't be two kings. I want the power. So the other one who's claiming that he has the power, I want a part of him and I'm gonna, he's dead to me. That's what it looks like to defy Jesus. And this is what I want you to see. It is impossible to love Jesus and retain your power to choose your own way of life. It's impossible. You can do things that may be lovely, like come and sing songs and believe right doctrine, but at the end of the day, if you're following your own way and you're retaining the power to choose over and against Jesus' will, you don't really love him and you're not really in him. So if that's true, if that's true of you today, even if you've been in church your entire life, would you confess and repent and fall on your face before the throne of King Jesus and say, have your way in my life? Absolute defiance. All right, there's, there's another, another uh, category of response to Jesus in this passage, and it's surprising desertion. Surprising desertion. Let's look at verses 10 and 11 and move on to old Judas. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, man, I love that. I love that clarifier there by Mark. It's like, if you've forgotten who Judas Iscariot is, he's one of the 12, one of Jesus' closest friends someone who's been following closely with Jesus for three years, one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. I bet they were. I bet they were. They're probably just racking their brains with how can we take this guy down? And we have an insider that comes to us and gives us the information of how we can do it. I bet they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, some of the other gospel writers are a little more harsh on Judas here. Uh, one would say uh, in the actual scene that it was Judas who was leading out and berating this woman. Um, and then we also learn more details about just the transaction itself, the 30 pieces of silver that Judas will receive in exchange of handing over uh, Jesus, but it's surprising. You know, we, we naturally think of Judas as, as a traitor, but think about it in time, how surprising that would have been for one of Jesus' inner circle to turn him over to the religious authorities. It's surprising. Judas deserted Jesus because he valued money more than Jesus. He valued money more than Jesus. 30 pieces of silver kind of translates to about a thousand bucks. A thousand bucks. And again, we could speculate. Was it, was it because he was fed up with Jesus? Like he kept waiting and waiting and waiting for him to overthrow the Romans and then he finally came to the realization, Jesus isn't the Messiah. This isn't what the Messiah is supposed to do. You know, they were all kind of thinking it, but maybe Judas was just leading out in that and he was like, they, they no, he's not the Messiah. I'm done with this guy. Sick of all these dang parables and all these little stories. And this woman does some crazy thing in this house and he's like, that's beautiful. Like, no, I'm sick of this guy. I'm done with him. I'm, I'm gonna go make some money. I don't know, maybe. But we do know that Judas valued something more than Jesus, which made it easy for him to turn in the king of the universe for a thousand bucks. It was a bad trade. It was a bad deal. You see, even though Judas followed Jesus, Jesus never captivated Judas' heart. Judas was never captivated by Jesus. And he followed him around and you know, he listened to his teaching. He, he had incredible spiritual privilege. But Jesus never captivated Judas' heart. Judas was with Jesus for a while, but in the end, he fell away. Judas he looked like a follower, didn't he? He was always there. Can you imagine, like, if you were just in Palestine and you, you got the 12 walking around with Jesus? It's like, oh, there's Judas. He's a follower. 
He looks like a follower. He acted like a follower for the most part. And he sounded like a follower. But he proved in the end by his betrayal that he never was. That he never was. He looked like a follower. He acted like one. He sounded like one. But in the end, he proved that he never was. This is sobering for us. Please don't be content to look like a follower of Jesus. Please don't be content to just act like one and sound like one. Because if you're depending on religious appearances, we've talked about it before, religious appearances, they do well at the country club, they do well at Danvers, they do well here. They don't do well in God's presence. Religious appearances get you nowhere with God because he sees right to the deepest crevice of your heart. I want you to turn somewhere with me so you can see how practical this is. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. How, how John actually picks up on this, this thought in John 2, or 1 John 2. 1 John 2 verse 19 talking about people who were in the fellowship who left who deserted the church it causes you to ask questions right maybe you have a family member or a friend who claimed to follow Jesus for a really long time and then there came a moment in their life when they were like I'm done with this I don't believe in Jesus anymore I'm gone and it causes you to be like whoa you know, all kinds of theological questions come up. It's like, was this person really saved and now they're not? You know, how firm is Jesus' grip on me if I can leave him? You know, it causes you to go into all kinds of uh, theological um, side roads. But I want you to see First John two nineteen how similar this is to Judas, and this is directly applicable to us as the church. John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now this is true in the church big C. So the big C, the universal church. There are going to be some in the church who attend services week after week after week, who are actually not of us. And it will be proved in the end. Judas, the entire time in Jesus' ministry, this is at the end, guys. Like, this is not like early on. This is at the end when Jesus betrays, or Judas betrays Jesus. He lays his cards on the table and he reveals that he never really was with him. I have tons of questions, right? It's like, well, what was going through Judas's mind the whole time? Did he think he was a follower of Jesus? What did he think of him? Here's all we know based on what he did in the end. It's that Jesus never captivated his heart. Jesus was not the all-consuming passion of his life. And he fell away. And it's a warning to us. It's a warning to us. Don't depend on past obediences for future obedience. Depend wholly on God's grace. God's past grace on Golgotha where Jesus will later in Mark here we're going to see go and die and come back to life. Depend on his present grace in the moment to overcome sin and depend on his future grace for you. But if you're depending on anything else and if you're valuing anything more than Jesus, we're in a dangerous place. We're in a dangerous place because none of us, none of us are beyond deserting Jesus. Jesus will never leave us. He will never desert us. None of us are beyond deserting Jesus. And so just because you may be thinking, there's no way I'd ever do that today it was in the end when Judas fell away may we all guard our hearts and heed this important warning from Judas it is possible to be close to Jesus without being connected to Jesus it can be close I don't want any of us to be close 
I want us to be all in. I want us to be connected fully to Jesus only because that's our only hope. Otherwise, we're gonna fall away. And in case you're wondering what it looks like to betray Jesus, you're like, ah, okay, how does this parallel to my life? It's really simple. You claim to follow him without obeying him. You call Jesus a friend only to sell him out. What's it look like to sell Jesus out? You claim to follow him, that means you claim to live like him, to do what he does. And so you're praising Jesus one side of your mouth and then you're sinning the other side of your mouth. Every time you choose sin over Jesus, it's a form of betrayal. Every time. So there are little little spots of betrayal in all of our lives and there will be until the presence of sin is long gone. But ultimate betrayal, ultimate betrayal is habitual unrepentant sin and so if you are struggling right now with habitual sin that your heart has grown cold to that you are unrepentant of please turn please turn I know any of our elders our pastoral staff that's why we're here to help shepherd one another life group leaders to help come alongside one another so that we are confessing sin and turning from sin so that we don't allow it to linger and have our hearts grow cold so that one day we end up turning our back on Jesus. May that phrase be a warning to us. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. And I pray there are no Judases in our midst. Okay, surprise and desertion. Third, third category here is comfortable discipleship. Now this is where I, you know, I kind of see myself wanting to linger and stay. I, I kind of saw some attributes that fit me here. Comfortable discipleship. Now, this is what we're talking about. The scene itself where the woman pours the uh, a nard on Jesus' head and you have the whole crowd in there that freaks out. They lose it. And so we're going to focus on the disciples primarily. And what we're going to see is the disciples were casually following Jesus because they valued comfort more than Jesus. So let's look at it. Let's look at it. Starting in verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Okay. So this is the group, the the casual follower of Jesus, those who get really uncomfortable when you see any kind of radical acts of love or devotion for Jesus. They they kind of want a a religion in moderation. They kind of have that view. It's like, yeah, we'll follow Jesus, but we kind of have a limit for what we would do and what we would say and what we would give. And you have to understand the nature of this gift. This woman does something that really is kind of crazy. And it makes me a little uncomfortable when I first read it. And I think I would probably have been right in their corner. Like, oh, what are you doing? You know, you just have that look. It's like, you know, in TC Kids, we, we have it all the time. Our small group leaders will understand this. It's like whenever the kids do something just kind of crazy, and you're just like, you, you didn't, like at first you don't even say anything. You're just like, what? You, you did what? You're, you're doing what? She takes... You know, 300 denarii, let's call it $30,000. That's about what it, you know, translates to. 30 grand, a flask of perfume, $30,000 on Jesus' head. Now, if you're kind of freaked out about the anointing part, some people are like, oh, well, she saw Jesus as the Messiah, and so she was anointing him like they would an Israelite king. That's not likely. Um, And then, oh, she knew Jesus was going to die soon, so she actually was preparing his body for burial. That's also not likely. It was customary in Jerusalem at this time that when you had an honored guest come to your home for dinner, it was customary to anoint them with olive oil. And so I I believe that's what this woman was doing. I believe this woman started thinking to herself, okay, here comes Jesus. She'd heard of his power. Maybe she'd witnessed his power. Maybe Simon the leper was someone she was close to. Surely, Surely he was close to her since she was in his home. So maybe she saw his power. 
She knew he was different. She knew he was special. She knew his worth exceeded anyone she had ever been around in her entire life. So yeah, he's an honored guest, but he's an incredibly honorable guest. Olive oil? No, not the olive oil. Let's go get the best. Bring out that $30,000 nard. This is really unique. It was from India, which either means that this woman was incredibly wealthy or she had inherited this in some way. And we don't know if she, she may have had five or six of those. We don't know. We don't know if it was her only one. We only know what we're told. But this woman takes a $30,000 bottle of perfume and pours it all over Jesus' head. And I, I just, I sympathize with the disciples here. They get, they get corrected by Jesus, but it's like, for example, let's say that one of you wanted to give me a $30,000 watch, which I'm not opposed to if you just have one on you. But let's say that you wanted to, to bring me a gift, and so after the service, you come up, oh, Pastor, I love, you know, it was a great sermon, way too long, but it was okay. And, and you, you pull out, you know, of your pocket, you have this $30,000 watch, and you give it to me. What do the rest of you do and say? Like, sure, that's, that's a nice gesture, but how wasteful is that? Like, you can get a nice $200 watch, and it would do the job. You guys would be indignant at this person. And what would you probably say? What do we do? Oh, man, when I was in college, we were so bad for this. Oh, man, because when you're in college, you're poor. And when I was in college, I mean, you're really poor. Like, that's an understatement. Like, you're, like, dirt poor. Any college students in the room right now? Woo, woo. Yeah, we poor, right? So, so yeah, um, when I was in college, we were reading through David Platt's book, Radical. So it made me even more crazy, you know? Like, anyone who has any money at all, it's like, how dare you? How dare you, you know, buy a new car for your family? And what do they say here? They're like, she's wasted. She's wasted this. She could have taken, if she wanted to do a nice act or a good deed, what could she have done? She could have taken that and sold it and gotten 30 grand and given that money to the poor. See, that's what we say, right? That's what we would do in college. You'd see someone rolling up in a fancy vehicle and it's like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Why, why, why would, I'm, sh- I'm sure they're not a Christian because if they knew Jesus, if they knew Jesus, there's no chance they would buy something like, how wasteful, how wasteful. Take that money and give it to the poor, right? Well, the disciples, their issue, and Jesus corrects them, is like, the poor you'll always have with you. But something this woman recognized, Jesus is here now. The poor are gonna be here next week. Jesus is here now. I'm going to give him all I have. And the reason that they were so upset at her is because, quite simply, it made them uncomfortable. This kind of lavish devotion and love and sacrifice for Jesus made no sense to them. And their problem was not that they were valuing the poor. I mean, that's a great great idea, guys. I mean, yeah, sure, it's good to give to the poor. But their, their problem was their valuation of the poor in relation to Jesus. Jesus isn't like, that's a bad idea. It's like, no, I'm here now. The poor you'll always have with you, but I won't always be here. So what does it look like to casually follow Jesus? Here's what it looks like. When your obedience to Jesus never exceeds your comfort zone. Like, I'll obey Jesus, but I have a limit, and that's my comfort zone. Maybe you've never shared the gospel with anybody because having a conversation about something that deep and that serious is just too uncomfortable for you. You're going to need your inhaler, and you're going to need you know, someone to calm you down and talk you down after it's over because you can't imagine actually going to someone and talking to them about something so weighty as eternal life and their heart, and the condition of it, and their sin. Like, it just stresses you out, so there's no chance you'll ever do it. Even if Jesus called you to do it. Because Jesus shatters our comfort zones. And he calls us to a way of life that seems radical to most. 
Well, if we try to rebuild that wall, we will only casually follow Jesus and then acts of sacrificial love and devotion will seem crazy to us. Someone who's able to have deep faith in the midst of great sorrow will seem strange to us. Well, that's not the only thing. What's it look like to casually follow Jesus? You'll have a limit for what you would give or do for the sake of the gospel. And if you casually follow Jesus, he's too small. Your view of Jesus is, is way too small. In the eyes of the disciples, the woman went too far. It was nice, right? In their eyes, nice gesture. Anoint Jesus, but did you have to break the flask? Like, just whoop, pop it open and a couple little, you know, just, just a couple little dabs. That's fine. It, 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 that'll be enough. Well, what's too far for us when it comes to loving and living for Jesus? What's too far for you? Right now, is there anything in your life, any area of your life where you're like, I just don't think I can do that? have a number of, of you know, college-age students that are here, a little bit older, who have talked about uh, being convicted to do something and then responding in that. I remember Paige talking about you know, how she really felt like she wanted to lead a Bible study for some friends of hers and then responding in faith and doing that. What is God calling you to right now that kind of on the surface makes you feel a little uncomfortable? Would you trust him? and allow Jesus to just shatter your comfort zone and obey him because otherwise you'll remain comfortable in your discipleship and you'll only casually follow Jesus and you'll miss out on the blessing that this woman receives. So comfortable discipleship. And then the last category, extravagant devotion. This is the goal. Like I said, Jesus holds this woman up and he says, right there, that's it. That's how you follow Jesus. If you're young in the faith and you're wondering, I don't really know what it means to follow Jesus. I don't really know what it looks like right here. Let's look at it right now. In verse six, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This woman, we're not given her name. Similar to the widow. Remember the widow earlier in Mark's gospel? At the end of Mark 12, she gives two copper coins. She's not named. And Jesus looks at her and he says, right there. That's the example. That's how you give. That sacrificially. And now you have another woman in Mark 14 who's unnamed, who gives something that's worth $30,000. And he says, right there. That's it. Why? Because the woman radically loved Jesus because she valued nothing more than him. Jesus recognized that this woman had abandoned everything and saw him as irresistibly beautiful. I love what John Piper says about this. He says, it is a beautiful thing when the worth of Jesus and the love of his followers match. When the value of his perfections and the intensity of our affections correspond. I think that's the point here. I think that's the point of this entire passage. Jesus says what she has done is beautiful. And the reason it's beautiful is because her devotion to Jesus, her love for Jesus matches his worth. She recognizes that Jesus is more valuable than anything else in her life and she acts accordingly. Why was it beautiful? Why was it beautiful? A few reasons. First, because her love for Jesus matched his worth. Second, because unlike Judas, she was captivated by Jesus and her actions proved it. And then thirdly, Jesus was the all-consuming passion of her life. Is that true for you today? Is Jesus the all-consuming passion of your life? Do you value nothing else in this world more than Jesus? Because that's the essence of discipleship. You see how difficult this is? 
There's so many other things vying for our affections in this world. Good things, family, sports, work, all of those things, school, they're good things. They're vying for our affections. But if you hold any of those things as more valuable than Jesus, then you will never be able to live a life that he calls beautiful. Jesus looks at this woman and he says, you've done a beautiful thing. You've done a beautiful thing because you get it. You see it. Now, I don't believe that this woman really knew what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. I don't believe that this woman actually knew Jesus was going to die. She's doing far more than she realizes here. Jesus makes the comment, she has anointed my body for burial, but I don't think that was her intent. But for all she didn't know, she got it. She got the worth and the glory of Jesus and her love and her actions matched that. We have far more knowledge than this woman did. We have far more revelation. We're privileged to have the word of God in our language. And when we read it, we see the beauty of Jesus. We see his supremacy. We see and we know more so than this woman ever would have that he is not only a great prophet and a great teacher, but he is God himself in the flesh. That he is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end that all things are reconciled in him. And in him, he makes peace between God and sinful man. When we look at this Jesus and we see his beauty, I pray, I pray that it would cause us to live lives that show his beauty. And so this is something else I want you to see here. This is how I'm gonna close. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble me? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and wherever and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. Here's what Jesus is saying. Yeah, she broke a flask that has $30,000 worth of perfume in it and poured it on my head, and I'm worth it. I'm worth it. Jesus knew his worth. What else did Jesus know? Then Jesus said, she did what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So we have this paradox. Jesus knows his inestimable worth. And Jesus also knows his mission is to die. Jesus recognizes and he affirms, I'm going to die. And so what's the motivation for our sacrificial love for Jesus expressed in beautiful acts of worship in the world, our motivation is the extravagant love of Jesus for us. You see, Jesus extravagantly, radically loved us by sacrificially giving up his life so that we could be reconciled to God. It cost him much. And it wasn't because we were really awesome, it was because of his great grace and love so I'm going to ask Mitch to come now it's not out of guilt it's not out of guilt that we live for Jesus I know this is probably something we we think of when we think of a passage like this Jesus has done so much for me the least I could do is live for him and we see this woman living for Jesus We think it only makes sense, but guilt is not a good motivator. Gratitude is. Gratitude for the gospel is our motivator to live for the glory of Jesus in our lives. So I'm going to go back to those first questions. What is Jesus worth? What is Jesus worth to you? How does your life show it? How does your life communicate the worth of Jesus? If someone else looks in your life, would they know how great and awesome Jesus is? I pray we would not be like the chief priests and the scribes. 
where we're so consumed with our own kingdoms that we defy Jesus and his. I pray that there would be no Judases among us, that we would not be content to just look like followers and act like followers and sound like followers and be really, really, really close to Jesus without being connected to him. If you feel you're in either of those camps, would you respond, maybe even now, by just renouncing all of that, turning from your sin and clinging to our one hope for being reconciled to God, and that's Jesus. But maybe you're in this room and you're a disciple of Jesus, but you're just content to dwell in a little comfort bubble. Would you allow Jesus to shatter it and take you to new depths of obedience to him that you wouldn't otherwise have gone? And I pray our goal, I pray our goal would be to live lives in such a way that Jesus looks at us and says, that's it. That's it right there where our love for him matches his worth. Let's pray. Father, we can't do any of those things without your help. As we've seen the glory of Jesus on display, he is going to die. This woman unknowingly probably anoints Jesus' body for burial. And she sees his great value and worth. Father, help us to not value or treasure anything in our lives more than Jesus. Help us to examine our hearts honestly. Confess sin where we need to. Repent where we need to. Ask forgiveness where we need to. And Father, help us to live in such a way that we show the beauty of Christ because we've seen it. Empower us. Empower us to change where we need to change. And give us eyes to see your great worth so that in the end, we would not betray you, but we would be examples of others for what it looks like to follow you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We invite you to stand. We can sing a song of response. Mm-hmm.